Concerning the weather, just one more thing and a comment on the weird shape of our spring. This year, rather than seasons times four, we'll have three and a half, in case you're keeping score. This is Spectrum West. I'm Al Ross, darting into your day with news, views, and personalities engaged in the abundant arts, culture, and humanities of Western Wisconsin. This week, a very special Monday evening is on the horizon. Pure voices raised in song and backed by a purpose. We have two guests with close ties to what and who it's all about. We're putting report cards together. Does that date me? Are there report cards anymore? Uh, how are we doing? The arts and creative sector, that is, making the most of the pandemic reboot. Our guest spells out a few things. Sunday afternoon, instead of bowling on TV, here's something else that's right up your alley. The Eau Claire Chamber Orchestra ends its season in style. And let's get the wheels turning with this. We've spoken with Ann Katz, Director of Arts Wisconsin, many times over the years, and she's always been supportive of everything going on in this creatively busy corner of the state. However, we will not be talking with Ann Katz of Arts Wisconsin ever again. Well, that's because from now on, it'll be Ann Katz of Create Wisconsin. They have a new name. The evolution of Create Wisconsin is fundamental to the organization's mission to stay in tune with and ahead of trends, issues, and opportunities as the catalyst for creative growth, equity, and possibility for everyone, everywhere in the state. And Katz, thanks for being with us. I'm very curious how much of a role the uh, pandemic experience may have played in instigating this transformation. Because, you know, as well as anybody, there was a lot of tap dancing and jerry-rigging and breaking the glass in the door to get out the life preservers. So did that cause Arts Wisconsin to look at its business model and decide maybe a makeover was in order? Yes, actually. And by the way, Al, thanks for having me on. I'm always glad to talk to you. My pleasure. We actually came to think about the idea of transforming and evolving. I'll say evolving is a better word before the pandemic. Uh, it's probably been almost four years since we, when I say we, the board of directors of the organization started talking seriously about this. We put a lot of information together about why we would do this and what it would be all about before the pandemic. And we had a little bit of a hitch as the pandemic started. But as you said, it was more obvious than ever that the world was changing more rapidly than any of us could even imagine and that we needed to stay ahead of that. And so the pandemic actually pushed us to do it that's a, a good outcome in some ways of the pandemic that we actually really started being serious about it. So we've been working on it for almost four years. We've been working on it in earnest for over a year in terms of creating a new logo, creating a new website, getting the language together. And finally, we're able to uh, hit send on the press release this week. This is bringing our brand in line with the work we've been doing and the world is open to us as we weave together the arts community and the economy into work that is going to serve the entire state. It's pretty exciting. It is. I'm excited. Are there or will there be noticeable changes or what does Create Wisconsin have more of than Arts Wisconsin did? The changes will evolve. I think that's the, that's the word uh, okay. that I will use. We have 30 years of work behind us and of partnerships, achievements, and accomplishments. We have that base 
now we're going to be able to go more strategically into the creative economy world and make the case, activate and advocate for the arts community and economy as what Wisconsin needs. As crazy as things are now, we all have the opportunity to, to build a, a more vibrant, just, equitable and creative society. And although that is not a linear or smooth process, what I see is that the things that were out there that were important to work on before the pandemic are now more urgent than ever. And so Create Wisconsin gives us a much better platform from which to work. Is it safe to say that maybe Create Wisconsin will delve more into that economic factor than previously? The way I have it written is, whereas it may have been the misconception before, Create Wisconsin is activating the story that the arts and culture are not separate from the overall priorities of the state. Creativity is essential to the well-being and future of Wisconsin, its people, and its communities. During the pandemic, we focused um, every time you and I chatted on the economic side of it and how people being closed were losing. And then there was positive news about the, uh, the help they were getting to keep their heads above water. Is that more of a focus? now? The fact that the arts are are walking in the same lane as every other economic factor in any community or state? Oh, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Thank you for the opportunity. I know I've said on your show a million times that the reason that the arts are important is because the arts make us human. Humans have been expressing themselves creatively since the beginning of time. So that's why creativity is important, because we all need to be creative beings. And in the 21st century, Uh, I think the pandemic pretty definitively put an end to the 20th century in terms of the kind of economy that we have been living with and sort of the social issues that are out there. The the 20th century is now going to recede into the past. We're catapulting ourselves into the 21st century. The 21st century is a creative age. So the 20th century, for this country at least, was the manufacturing age. The U.S. was a powerhouse in terms yeah. of making cars mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. widgets and paper and, and so many things. And Wisconsin really embodied that. You know, we used to be a place where they made co- we made cars, we made paper, we made all sorts of things. We still want to be a manufacturing state. That's still important. But even manufacturing needs to come up with new ideas mm-hmm. and is a rapidly changing industry. And so we don't make cars here anymore. We don't make very much paper here anymore. And what we do have are incredibly creative entrepreneurs who are running small businesses. They are involved in their communities. We need to make investments in those creative people and industries. And so we have in the last X number of years really integrated the economic issues into our message, Create Wisconsin, what we're really all about is economic workforce and community development and investment. So the economy is not separate from the workforce or the community issues. Mm -hmm. They are all intertwined. You have to have vibrant communities where everybody gets to participate in order to have places where people want to live, in order for businesses to either relocate or start up. And all of that is a, is a big mix. And so Create Wisconsin is the catalyst that's going to work in all in those different universes and bring them together. That's what we're working on. Um, I love saying this. Before the pandemic, we had an industry, a creative industry that 
affected a $10.9 billion economic return to the state. Mm -hmm. The U.S. Department of Commerce looked at 35 different creative industries, um, everything from nonprofit organizations to for-profit businesses to media, design, architecture, crunched the numbers and found that it was a 10.9 billion with a B, billion dollar industry. And nationally, it was almost a trillion dollars worth of economic impact. So that's pretty good. Those industries also had more jobs than the beer, biotech, and papermaking industries. Yeah. We now have numbers from the beginning of the pandemic, and they have gone down. But it's still a several billion dollar industry, and there are still more jobs than the beer, biotech, and papermaking industries. So when you put that kind of data together with the stories of communities transforming themselves and people and, and businesses based on creativity, and Wisconsin is full of those, there's our story. There's our message. The arts and creativity are an investment worthy of attention. And we're working on everything from encouraging our private businesses, which are very generous, uh, to make sure that they are investing, to our public agencies and government, making sure our state and our government agencies um, understand the value of the arts and creativity uh -huh. and the industries that they support. Wisconsin sometimes gets, um, justifiably so, a bad rap for uh, being 49th in the country in terms of per capita public investment in the arts through the Wisconsin Arts Board. We have many other ways the government um, invests in the creative industries. But the 14 cents per capita that the Wisconsin Arts Board has to work with pales dramatically in comparison to uh, Minnesota, which is over $7 per person. You mentioned before the emergency money that came along during the pandemic, and we have to thank Governor Evers and uh, his administration for the CARES Act money, the American Rescue Plan Act money, the, the federal government provided Paycheck Protection Program money, the Shuttered Venue Operators Grants, which was $15 billion from the federal government, unemployment insurance available to self-employed workers, which had not been the case before. Mm -hmm. The money that came to the arts industry during the pandemic was critical. It kept organizations, businesses, and people alive. But now we're at the end of the pandemic, we hope. And that emergency money is not going to be out there anymore. Organizations soldiered on over the last two years, and they're going to continue to do that. But it remains to be seen what happens in terms of capacity and stability. That emergency money really made the difference. And now that that's gone, all the factors of the pandemic are still out there. The great resignation where people are leaving their jobs, there's inflation, people coming back to arts events is going to be a process. There are a lot of issues that will affect the arts industry and all of our industries in this state. We're really encouraging that people remember, although the economy is coming back and, and hopefully we're out of the pandemic, there are still a lot of those issues out there that are going to affect small businesses and especially the creative industries. Ann Katz, she is director of Create Wisconsin. Hey, wait a minute, you are saying. She's with Arts Wisconsin. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I feel pretty much energized. Um, this is certainly the most interesting thing I've ever done. I can't think of a more interesting job. I have um, been really fortunate to travel around the state and meet so many creative people and marvel at the creativity in Wisconsin. I feel pretty fortunate. It feels good. Do you feel like Create Wisconsin is going to be more visible to the uh, usual citizen and community than in the past? And is some of what you have redesigned designed to do that? 
Yeah, the whole issue of talking about creativity connected to the arts community economy makes it possible for us to have even deeper partnerships with the people that are doing the work on the local level. So, you know, I'm hoping that we are visible in terms of helping our local constituents do their work. You know, as a service organization, we try to meet people where they need to be met. As we all figure out what it means to live in this post-pandemic world, I think we will be finding opportunities to be more visible overall. I will say, actually, in terms of visibility, as you know, it's an election year. Mm -hmm. And that gives all of us a great opportunity to make the case that the creative economy is a very important component of what Wisconsin is all about. And as candidates on any level are talking about their dreams for Wisconsin's future, everybody understands the value of the arts and creativity. And and we're going to be working really hard to make sure they know how much investment will make a difference for their constituents and their districts. So the the election year, which is going to be a wild ride, is really a great opportunity for us to get the word out. Wisconsin needs to grow creatively. I like wild rides. I'm going to guess that maybe two years ago, you did not imagine yourself feeling as good two years hence as you are feeling now. It really did make us focus. The daily noise of just getting things done fell away. And so we had more time to think, what can this be? So I'm grateful for that. I must say it tastes like lemonade to me. You took well, the lemons. You, yeah, the, lemons to... the lemons you had have now become a refreshing A sparkling drink. That's treat. a really good way to think of it. Uh, Ann Katz, always a pleasure. Thank you, <laughs> and uh, good luck with Create Wisconsin. Well, I appreciate your advocacy and interest, Al. Thanks so much. Yet to come on Spectrum West, more on arts health by the numbers, an inspiring vocal concert, and next, I predict Sunday afternoon, you might hear an echo. Spectrum West on Wisconsin Public Radio. Good to have you along. The Confluence Dance Project will have two performances this week beginning at 7.30 p.m. Friday and Saturday at Pablo Center at the Confluence. The performances will showcase faculty, guest, and student choreography with demonstrations of an array of choreography and the versatility of students in the dance program at uh, UW-Eau Claire, I do believe. The Eau Claire Chamber Orchestra closes out its season Sunday afternoon with a program that's a true All-American. I talked earlier this week with musical director Frank Watkins to get details on Sunday's event, but also reflect on the season, which included some amazing guest artists and was the first full audience-in-theater-seats season since things went pandemic. I began by asking Frank about his perspective on the season and his pride in the group's resilience. Very proud of the orchestra. Uh, it's great to be back in person after you know the hiatus of COVID and to have live concerts again and to actually have a full season once more. We had some amazing solos with Sean Chen and Eunice Kim, and it was just a great way to revitalize music here in the Chippewa Valley. We're definitely excited about the concert this weekend featuring the bassoon concerto played by an amazing bassoonist, Trent Jacobs, who is also on the faculty here. There is great music written for bassoon, but we're always happy that composers are still lending voice to that special instrument, and uh, we're just happy to be a part of that consortium. I think our audience would be interested in how you guys go about putting concerts 
together. And I'm sure you have next season pretty well uh, in order. Well, let's do some uh, Mozart and Haydn. And Sean Chen's a great guy. Do you know these people personally? Do you look over brochures? How do you decide on getting people of that stature? I didn't know either performer actually personally. We were in partnership with the Pablo and were able to secure funding. Uh, so we were able to reach out to different agents about uh, artists looking to, to perform with uh, orchestras. So it just kind of worked out that we were able to uh, interact with, with those agencies and, and get those great artists here. It's kind of a chicken and the egg thing, but what comes first, the artist and then the music? Or do you think of music and then who fits that? of the music itself and kind of the overall theme that we're going for for that concert. So if I'm looking to program a, a Beethoven concerto, who's out there, who's playing this, and who's who will be w- willing to, to come to Eau Claire? So you kind of start with the music itself and then reach out to artists. Well, let's move into um, Sunday's concert. Let's go through the stuff that you're going to be playing. William Grant Stills Symphony Number no. 1, Afro-American. It's an historic piece. Yeah, it's an amazing uh, piece. Luckily, that you know, it's getting played uh, much more now, but uh, just one of his, I think, just quintessential works that he wrote. And yeah, we're happy to to, to play this and to, to feature this this giant. Composed over 200 works, including uh, five symphonies and ballets, uh, over 30 choral works, uh, lots of art songs and chamber music as well. Uh, he's just a widely known composer. His ideas of the fusion of different folk idioms into the classical repertoire uh, is really fascinating and stunning, and we're just happy to perform this great work. The symphony encompasses elements of jazz and also influenced by the blues. We'll be able to notice the yeah. jazz and the blues in fusion? Absolutely. You'll be, you'll be able to hear with the different chord structures and how he voices his different instruments, also the colors and textures that he gets throughout the entire symphony. Arthur Foote, tell us uh, what of his pieces you're playing. We're, so we're playing uh, Foote's Serenade for Strings. This will feature just the string section of the orchestra. And we're playing just the first and third movement of, of this suite. And again, it's, it's going to sound really American, actually. Uh, Arthur Foote being from this generation of composers, born and didn't have much German influence, but strictly American influence and American sounds broad range of music in his repertoire, but also a broad range of colors that he gets from the string. It'll be really a nice juxtaposition between that and the the other symphony and the suite that's also on the program. Frank Watkins on the phone with us. He's the music director for the Eau Claire Chamber Orchestra coming up Sunday. Pablo Center, it is a two o'clock concert called American Dreams. All right, let's move on to the the Florence Price piece. Uh, It introduced a term with which I had to familiarize myself, tone poem. I wanted to look it up, and I'm glad I did, because I discovered that a a tone poem suggests a a storyline, and this piece paints some pictures for us, doesn't it? Yeah, certainly. It definitely paints um, the story kind of on the Mississippi River through America, right, actually, Mm -hmm. and, and picking up different elements from the, the plains and where the river goes through. So you get to hear references to New Orleans and to jazz, but also to the wide, vast landscape where you would find some Native American populations. So you hear some of that as well, then kind of on down south and to where you hear uh, lots of echoes of spirituals and jazz. So it kind of just follows the river through America and tells that experience um, in a musical way. And the special bassoon concerto. Tell the audience the process of commissioning a work. How does that get done? To commission a work, you usually um, have an idea in mind and contact a composer, 
uh, kind of get their thoughts, and then you, you know, work out the length of time, the instrumentation, the ideas you're going for. We're a part of a consortium, several different organizations that went in together to process and to, and to pay for this work. And so we were able to uh, work with John Steinmetz, who's a great composer, get his ideas of how to bring the bassoon to life in a special way. You worked in unison with uh, Trent Jacobs about getting that done? Trent approached us about the idea. He heard about this consortium happening and wanted to know if we wanted to be a part of it and put it on the season. And of course, we jumped at the opportunity to feature Trent. He's an amazing bassoonist. Uh, when he brought the idea, we were all hands on deck. The bassoon really doesn't get uh, the spotlight very often, does it? I think it should. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a color that is unlike anything else. It's, it can be warm and vibrant, but also piercing. And yeah, I mean, certainly like the human voice, just the flexibility with what you can produce with the bassoon. It's kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of instruments. You know, I love the cello. Is, is the bassoon comparable to the cello as far as uh, its range and where it fits within woodwinds as cello fits within strings? Absolutely, yeah. The bassoon you know, kind of really anchors the woodwind section provides definitely support uh, and foundational as far as tone color, but also, you know, is great with harmony and, and melodic lines as well. So it, it, it plays many different characters in the orchestra. It had a wonderful part in Peter and the Wolf. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Good for it. It did get its... And, and now here's another one. So we're all excited about that. Again, the concert is called American Dreams. It happens Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock at uh, Pablo Center at the Confluence. You can get tickets at pablocenter.org. Frank Watkins, as always, thank you so much for a wonderful season. By the way, according to my figures, 2023 is Echo's 25th year. Are you planning big stuff? Yes, we're going to have an exciting season. So we're looking forward to celebrating the 25th year of the, the orchestra. Good deal. Frank, thank you so much, and uh, have fun Sunday afternoon and uh, Sunday night looking back on a great season. It's been satisfying for everybody involved. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That should be fun, as always, and uplifting. Next up on Spectrum West, research is saying a few more things about the arts community, and later a touring choir will be visiting and vocalizing soon. Spectrum memos, man, we've got lots of them. Young performers enrolled in old gem theater classes are working on Charlotte's Web and they'll be performing in schools and for the public between May 16th and the 27th. Schedules on the website oldgemtheater.com. We'll toss in some more memos as time goes on. For now, through all the peaks and valleys, highs and lows, ins and outs of the last disorganized couple of years, one group has been going about its business, collecting and organizing data so we might make sense of it all, or at least realize effects and use the information. The group is the Wisconsin Policy Forum, nonprofit, nonpartisan, but definitely on most everything else. Joe Peter Angelo is a senior researcher there. He's an Eau Claire native, and we wanted to know more about pandemic effects on the arts and cultural side of things. The report was recently released. 
Let's define the Wisconsin Policy Forum for our audience. It's supported by those who need and use its data and research. What is the history, Joe, behind it? What are the group's affiliations, if any? Are you an agency of something bigger? Yeah, no, we're, we're an independent, nonprofit organization. We have a long history. There was an organization in Milwaukee, most recently called the Public Policy Forum, but it's had different names over the years. It's been around since 1913, mm. conducted independent research on public policy issues. Then we had a, an organization in Madison that was called the Wisconsin Taxpayers Alliance, also very long history, looked at state budget, state policy issues. The two organizations merged about four or five years ago So we're a statewide research organization. We focus on statewide issues. We also focus on local Milwaukee issues. We still have that as part of our mission. We're supported by members from corporations, nonprofits, local governments, school districts, and individuals. We do independent research on a contract basis as well. So we have a broad range of ways that we're supported, but having that mix of support is really how we stay independent. Let's uh, segue now to the topic that uh, I and those with whom I talk each week are most interested in, which is the rebounding of the arts, cultural, and creative sector following the uh, tidal wave that caused uh, broad and often deep erosion a while ago. I can, Joe, vividly recall the early spring of 2020. I gathered with arts movers, shakers, and venue managers in those early days of the pandemic, And they were alarmed, and they were caught off guard, and they were nervous. Worst part uh, was all the question marks that were flying around in every direction. It appears to me as if the Wisconsin Policy Forum's job is chasing question marks, kind of smoothing out the curves and providing understanding. How quickly, and this could be in this case or any case, Do you begin collecting data when something as large as like the pandemic transpires? Yeah, so we tried to pivot as quickly as we could when the pandemic hit. Obviously, we knew it was going to affect the economy, local governments and school districts and everything throughout the state. And so we tried to take on different research projects that would get at different questions. Early on, we tried to look at what sectors of the economy were most likely to be hardest hit in Wisconsin and where were those sectors most concentrated. We knew that arts and culture was going to be among the hardest hit just of the nature of various aspects of arts and culture that tend to bring people together in indoor environments. And that was what we were mainly trying to avoid. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in the summer 2020, we took a look at this specifically at arts and culture and tried to explain, you know, the, the impact that arts and culture has from an employment and economic perspective, not to mention all of the quality of life aspects of it. We tried to paint that picture with data that showed the contributions that arts and culture made. And then also we worked with performing arts organizations that are part of the United Performing Arts Fund to try to gauge what kind of impacts they were already having as of the summer of 2020, staff reductions, canceled performances, et cetera. So that piece was called Arts and Culture in a Pandemic, an Existential Threat. Now, in our more recent report just published, uh, we tried to take an updated look at how well are they doing now. And um, I think we'll we'll keep an eye on this because there has been some recovery, but we'll, we'll continue to track this. The report has some good news 
it shows that employment in several specific jobs and vocations within what is arts and culture have recovered nicely. In fact, uh, some areas show numbers that are larger than they were pre-pandemic. But you guys are quick to point out that it's uh, the continuous tracking of data that matters most Mm -hmm. and tells the best story. Right, yeah. So it's a little bit tricky to track um, employment up to the current moment and have have it be really reliable data. Mm-hmm. So, so we looked at different data sources and yeah, like you said, we see recovery, but we want to continue to follow it and see if that is sustained. The best data we have is able to break down employment into smaller subsectors of the economy. And so we could look within arts and culture at how employment has recovered. We saw employment drop hugely at the beginning of the pandemic, more so in arts and culture than in most of the rest of the economy. We have seen, or we did see quite a bit of recovery in 2021, but the best data we have only goes through September of last year. At that point, we saw employment in performing arts, spectator sports, museums, historical sites. Those types of things had recovered quite a bit, but not all the way. There was still a much bigger lack of recovery in the motion picture and sound recording industries subsector, which that includes movie theaters. Um, there is some more recent data, but it, it muddies the picture in some ways because it includes not only arts and culture, but things like fitness centers and bowling alleys and golf courses and things like that. And when we look at that, we can look at data that goes all the way up to March and we see the recovery has continued and looks like employment has returned to pre-pandemic levels, which is great news, but we want to know what's going on at the more detailed level. and We just need to wait for that data to come available. So the bottom line, and uh, that's what you guys deal in is bottom lines, this is ongoing. And we should point out, obviously, since you guys deal in facts and figures, without all of the uh, unprecedented investment on the part of the federal government and uh, the states helping to distribute that aid, uh, much of this probably wouldn't be happening. And that brought up a question to me as I was thinking about it. If your data deals only in what's actually happening, as anyone imagined, and is that your job or not? what things and numbers might be like had millions of dollars in aid not shown up? Or do you deal with only the way things are? We have only been able to look at data as as things are. That would be a really interesting question to answer. A big part of this new report that we published was tracking all of that financial assistance. Really, all of that originated from the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan Act, federal relief programs provided grants and forgivable loans through a bunch of different programs. And we tracked um, a total of about $440 million directed to arts and culture organizations or businesses in Wisconsin, a huge amount of relief funding that clearly made a big impact. What we can see is that the number of arts and culture organizations and businesses hasn't declined, at least in the official federal data. That's another positive indicator that we haven't lost organizations and they've been able to make it through the pandemic. On the phone with Joe Peter Angelo, a senior researcher with the Wisconsin Policy Forum and a lead author of a report, part of which is called State of the Arts. And of course, in the last couple of years, 
This program, Spectrum West, has dealt with a lot of news concerning state-of-the-arts relative to the pandemic's effect. One interesting thing that you folks do and are, Joe, you're very measured in your responses. You probably understand moderation better than most of us, rather than uh, get overly excited about or overly optimistic or pessimistic about anything. Is the report that uh, you and I are talking about, is it conclusive? How are the arts and cultural folks and the venue operators and the studio operators, how are they all feeling about this? The data that we included in the report seems to show quite a bit of recovery, which is really a positive thing. But we we also see that there are still ongoing challenges, and especially as we speak with our leaders, we hear about those ongoing challenges. Those include, you know, despite all this federal pandemic relief funding, which was really helpful and helped to keep many of those organizations and businesses sustained up till now, that funding is going to run out for most of those organizations this year or next. And in some cases, the amount that they're bringing in through sales and also through donation hasn't necessarily rebounded to the pre-pandemic levels. In some cases, it might have, but in many cases, it hasn't. So that's going to be an ongoing challenge for those organizations to try to have as much sustained support after that pandemic relief funding runs out as they had before the pandemic. And then another thing that we've been hearing a lot about is challenges with hiring in various sectors, but in arts and culture specifically, because some people left during the pandemic, they didn't have sustained work. And now we've got, you know, a return, but there's low unemployment in general, there's increased competition with other sectors. So there is a lot of challenges, both on the income and the employment front for these organizations going into the future. So those are things that we're going to continue to follow. We've had George Sugros of the Wisconsin Arts Board on our show many times, and ironically, uh, Ann Katz of the newly named Create Wisconsin is a guest on this week's show. Were you also the group they called on to determine the impressive impact of the arts and culture on the Wisconsin economy that, that they've been touting? You know, actually, we found that kind of independently when we were doing our report two years ago, looking at the state of arts and culture with the pandemic in full force, because we wanted to understand how big of a piece of Wisconsin's economy is arts and culture, because sometimes people only think of it as a quality of life and, you know, community vitality kind of thing, which, which it is, but also makes considerable impact on the economy and on employment. So we used that in our initial report, and we do a little bit in this new report, too. We see that it's almost a $10 billion contribution to the state's economy, arts and culture. Interestingly, uh, Wisconsin, very good at using the relief funding in support of the arts. And ironically, we as a state invest less public funding in the arts than almost every other state. And yet um, we do recognize its importance in who we are. So uh, maybe that will all even out somewhere along the line. I wish, uh, Joe, that we had more time because although I'm not a numbers guy, I am fascinated by and I love hanging out with those who are. It's kind of a sad fact that maybe numbers are the only things that don't lie anymore. hmm? Yeah, and even that can be tricky. Oftentimes, we look at different options for addressing something, but we don't advocate for a specific solution. Independence is your uh, most important character trait. Yeah, I would say. 
WisconsinPolicyForum.org is your website. It's where people can go and learn more about you. You are an important part of, of who we are and how we go forward. That has become extremely obvious to me in, in the course of the minutes that we've been able to talk. Thanks for it, and pass it along to all your folks from Wisconsin Public Radio. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And yeah, we, we always appreciate the opportunity to talk about our work. Spectrum West on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Al Ross. So happy you're along for the ride this week. Some things are meant to be, and when it's part of an experience that begins painfully, acquiescing to a natural flow of love and friendship can indeed be healing. For Larry Stute and family, Monday evening, May 23rd, will hopefully provide strength and tranquility combined. Pablo Center will be filled with voices raised in song and raising contributions. And a woman named Rachel will be in minds, hearts, and lyrics. The aforementioned Larry Stute loves to sing. He's passed it on to his family, and he's invited some close friends, the amazing Luther College Nordic Choir and their director, Dr. Andrew Last, to sing along. And one of those voices is Larry's daughter. Let's find out more. Larry, yours is a, a story of how life can go sometimes, how who you know and what you know often work together in thankful ways to help you through times and situations. It's, it's also fitting that the concert is being performed at a confluence. Your story is a confluence, people coming together for the good of tomorrow. You are a singer, singer of stature, more lofty than uh, most of us sing along to the car audio types. Before we get specific, Larry, on what's happening, tell us briefly about your relationship with Luther College. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I went to college at Luther, not going to say exactly when, but it was before Dr. Last. Studied for pre-med, and I had a room at the University of Iowa before that. And my mom, who had been to a conference at Luther, decided I should enroll at Luther. So we went on a tour. I did not know that everyone got free lessons if they could sing at the time, but got free voice lessons and sang in the choirs. And that became kind of my release from science. I still went on to med school and things, but sang in Nordic choir for three years. I met my wife, Rachel. She was a musician as well, an excellent piano player. So we got to know each other then, and Luther's been a part of our lives ever since. Tell us about Rachel, if you would, please. I actually dated her best friend, and we dated off and on for quite a while. We got married in 1994, moved to Eau Claire in 1998, had three kids. Rachel was a stay-at-home mom. She accompanied many choirs in the area. She accompanied high school choirs, our kids at solo and ensemble, uh, middle school, our church, played in the bell choir, sang in the choir, so very involved with music. Um, she eventually... Unfortunately, uh, picked up an illness, a uh, fluke, kind of a rare young onset dementia that we didn't notice right away, but with time, we figured out something was wrong. That took away a lot of what she could do, but we're trying to remember her with this concert, but there's some other things going on with that as well. Dr. Last, there are a, a lot of impressive aspects of who you are, who you represent. The uh, history of the Nordic Choir is impressive. I like to talk about history on this show when I can. You have a personal history with the college as well. Are members of the uh, choir also encouraged to think about the legacy they represent by being in that group? 
I think it's something that we, we talk about frequently. It's a privilege and an honor to, to be in the ensemble. It's a privilege and honor to be able to represent Luther, to be able to travel and represent the college as we, we connect with um, prospective students and with alumni and with people in general who maybe haven't been introduced to Luther College yet. That's a responsibility that I don't hold lightly. It's something that was definitely a pivotal moment in my upbringing, my life uh, as a college student. I feel a great sense of responsibility, making sure that the students are aware of that of that honor and privilege that they have. I'm going to urge people to go online and, and catch a performance or two on YouTube of, of the choir. It's a fabulous, fabulous sounding group. It's one thing to perform. It's another to perform with a purpose. You're a teacher of choral activity, but this turns out to be a teaching moment of a different kind as well. Tell me about how the the Luther family got involved in this project. Most importantly, a member of the ensemble is is a member of this family. Uh, Laurel has been a three-year member of Nordic Choir and an outstanding member at that. When I heard Laurel's mom had passed away, um, I tried to, to respect Laurel's privacy, and obviously I noticed an absence from when she was off campus. Of course, we want to we want to lift up Laurel in whatever way possible, but we also want to respect the the need of any student to grieve however they, they want. And then when Larry contacted me and asked us to to consider participating in the project, it just seemed seemed like a, a very logical thing. My only worry was how would I proceed presenting and rehearsing this piece, knowing that it was so so powerful and personal to one of the members of the ensemble. Anytime that I approach any piece and know that there is an intensity in that connection, I have to do so with with a little more sensitivity. And so I I wanted to make sure as Larry was approaching me that I had had even just a brief conversation with Laurel. Are you okay with this? And are you good if we proceed and, and look at this piece as something that we would use throughout the uh, touring season? People don't sing the way your choir sings without having a, a very uh, deep understanding of what it is they're saying and what what they're singing about. This concert and what they're singing about and the cause they're singing for is is on a human level that we don't often get to reach. So are you seeing wonderful things happening within your group? Absolutely. When we first began rehearsing the piece, you know, I had invited Larry and Laurel to, to talk to the choir mm-hmm. um, before we had even sung a single note. And both of them were very encouraging to the ensemble to not only share their story about Rachel, but also to encourage the ensemble to think about how that text might take them to an, a connection of another family member or a friend that they can experience something similar with. So mm-hmm. part of that process throughout the, the learning of notes and rhythms and, and discussing the text has been, how do you interpret this particular phrase. And when Larry writes this, how are you internalizing this so that it speaks to every single individual member of the ensemble? The voice of Dr. Andrew Last, the speaking voice, love to hear the singing voice someday, director of choral activities at Luther College. Also on the phone with us is Larry Stute, a vocalist and a husband and dad. He lost his wife, Rachel, to dementia. And there's a very special event coming up on Monday evening, May 23rd, the beautiful RCU Theater, Pablo Center at the Confluence in Eau Claire, beginning at 6.30. It's called I Won't Forget Memories and Music. It also includes a stand in the light memory choir. Larry, um, the song, I Won't Forget, it's your tribute to Rachel. It's uh, better late than never. I, I know that you had hoped she might hear it, but then pandemic things took over. Did you find that this song was difficult to write, or did you find, given everything going on in your life, 
that things flowed and felt natural to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the words that I wrote, I didn't write originally for a song. I was sitting in our bedroom doing my daily devotions and had some scratch paper and thought I should write some things down. This was about a month after she had passed. I had tried to set this concert up uh, when we found out my wife was diagnosed and Laurel had made the choir back in 2018, 2019, but then the pandemic. So when this opportunity came for the choir to come to Eau Claire, things kind of fell into place. So I approached a UWC grad, Zachary Moore, and he's composed some pieces that have been just absolutely brilliant. I asked him if he would be willing to work on a piece. He graciously agreed and asked what text we should use. So I sent him what I'd written, didn't have any expectations. He loved what I'd written and took it from there. The piece um, speaks for itself. It's very personal, very emotionally raw, but I think it tries to capture our whole lives in about three and a half to four minutes. He did a very good job. The program has about two hours set aside. What else is on the bill that night? Stand in the Light Memory Choir will start, I believe, with a couple of pieces. Mm-hmm. Part of Nordic's program will be the piece we just talked about. And then you have a whole program set for your tour. That's correct. And I, I want to talk just a little bit about before this year happened, before I'd even seen the music for this particular piece, the hope was that we were going to get to tour. We weren't sure that this would happen because of the pandemic. But one of the sets that I wanted to feature on this program was a set that I'm entitling Our COVID Journey. What I wanted to do was feature a piece from a larger work that we were scheduled to do back in March in 2020. We never got to perform. That was really powerful for the students. It was a piece called Considering Matthew Shepard. We will open that set with uh, one single movement of that. But then we want to talk about how we as a world have kind of processed this kind of making our way through a, a pandemic. I just actually had a conversation with Laurel this morning about how we would introduce this piece while we were on tour. And one of the things I said, I really felt strongly that we needed to put this piece into that set because even though Rachel didn't pass away from COVID, it's a good reminder of what families went through during the pandemic. There were marriages, there were births, there were deaths, and that really impacted how we could function as a family and as a community. And life had to go on despite how those things presented themselves in our lives. So I I think this is a a beautiful reminder of how life had to go on. I have a feeling this is going to be a very powerful evening. People will thank their lucky stars they came to it. Again, it's Monday evening, May 23rd, begins at 6.30, RCU Theater. I should point out the concert is free, but tickets are required. It's going to be kind of a general admission seating type thing. PabloCenter.org is the website. I would suggest going there and searching I Won't Forget. It has kind of a lengthy slash slash address, so we won't try to impart that here. You guys will find it. By way of a little bit more promotion for Luther, Dr. Last, are the young people doing this concert a bit above and beyond the call of duty? I mean, isn't school somewhat over for the year by the time this (laughs) rolls around? Well, typically we would tour in the month of January, right between our two semesters. And about a year ago, as we were putting the calendar together, I think many people in this building kind of knew the wisdom of maybe not assuming that things would not be open 
to tour in January. So we knew the importance of getting back on the road uh, just because of the interactions we have, as I mentioned before, with prospective students and alumni. And so we, we purposely scheduled the tour for the two weeks after graduation. Yes, the students will be wrapping up their school year. Some of them will have just graduated, but I'd venture to guess that uh, not a single one of them is not wanting to have a full opportunity to tour after not getting to do so for the last couple of years. There you go. And I should point out to our audience that Chris Christmas is pretty special at Luther. I was reading all about that. Concerts and crowds, the two C's over there at <laughs> Luther. I have to take that in one of these days. Larry, any final thoughts? You must be feeling good. This is getting off the ground and uh, the way it's coming together. Yes, I'm very thankful. It's uh, almost a microcosm of my life. Everything, a confluence coming together, like you mentioned before, with so grateful to Luther and Dr. Last for agreeing to do this project. Thankful for Eau Claire and all my musical family. Zachary Moore. Everyone's been very helpful. And as you said before, the concert's a fundraiser for the Stand in the Light Memory Choir and then the Aging and Disability Resource Center, two organizations that are a tremendous help and boost for families and caregivers and people with dementia. So I can't think of a better way to honor not just Rachel, but all people that have gone through things either dementia-related or during the pandemic or just life. Powerful and meaningful. Two words I can come up with what I think this is going to be. After the fact, I'm sure there'll be more words to describe it. Congratulations, you guys, and thank you for your collaboration on this event. Also to Kathy Wrights and the Stand in the Light Memory Choir. Larry, please accept our condolences as well as our thanks for the inspiration. And uh, Dr. Last, thank you for keeping voices raised in song and in spirit. Thank you both. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Spectrum memos for you. The closing reception for the annual Area High School Art Exhibition at the Phipps Center in Hudson is Sunday from 1 to 3 p.m. It's free. It's fun. Check it out on Facebook, too. Hmm? Saturday at UW-Eau Claire, Barron County, it's the 13th annual EATS fundraising event. EATS stands for Educational Assistance Through Scholarship. It's from 6 to 9 p.m. Saturday evening. There's food, raffles, auctions, live music, and more. Barron.uwec.edu is the website there. Summer classes registration is open at the Eau Claire Children's Theater, and it's the final weekend this weekend of the musical adventures of Flat Stanley Jr. at the Oxford. We'll be talking with Wayne Merrick about what's next in coming weeks. ECCT.org is the website there. And we're scheduling guests to talk about a unique animal rescue effort. The Northern Lakes Center for the Arts. More spring arts tours are popping up and more coming up next week. In the meantime, enjoy this half of spring that we've been getting. And thanks Rick and Kate for promotion and thank you all for lending us your ears as often as you do. You can catch an archived version of WPR.org or at WPR.org of Spectrum West. And there are podcasts of the show floating around out there too. I'm Al Ross. Thank you so much. See you next week.